Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the Sustainable Podcast with your host, Rosalie. Today's episode is with Matthew Siegfried, who's a local historian here in Michigan and has lived in Ypsilanti since 2001. He's a graduate of Eastern Michigan University with degrees in history and historic preservation. Much of his work has been on Ypsilanti's local history and its connections to broad historical moments. He has focused on Ypsilanti's rich indigenous and black history and has produced a website called South Adams Street at 1900, which details the development of Ypsilanti's black community. In this episode, we discuss his journey that led him down the path of history, the importance of place-based education, relational perspectives, and landscapes as the interfaces of society and nature. We also talk about the role of the collective in understanding our history and the importance of having agency in our own decision-making and self-determination by understanding the past to a greater degree. To read more about Matthew's work, visit the links in the description of the episode and check out the website for the South Adams Street at 1900 project that Matthew has developed. I hope you enjoy the episode and the conversation with Matthew and as always, encourage you to check out more of his work. Enjoy the show. How did you develop your interest in history, right? It's, it's, I don't think most people grow up becoming inherently interested in it. I think it's probably something that was learned or, or taught, right? But I could be wrong. Oh, I think there's, I mean, there's very sort of individualized answers to that question and then there's more sort of social answers to that question i mean on the individual answer to that question i was always as a young person attracted to older people you know like at family reunions all the kids would play together and i would want to hang out with the 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 great grandparents and the old timers you know and i grew up in a I grew up in a family, a part of my family that had kind of strong labor union tradition and was deeply proud of of their own kind of activity. And so you would look at pictures on the wall and they would they would be pointed out who they were. And I had a lot Mm -hmm. of family sort of like die in coal mines and stuff like that. So you would there would always be pictures on the wall of people who died in a coal mine or something like that. And there was kind of reverence to them. And and so I treated uh, the past with a kind of reverence from an early age. And then, of course, as I got older, the past was a way to explain how we were living today. And eventually, I came to see the past is not past at all, that in fact, we live every day, not just in the built landscape and the built environment or the or the changed natural landscape, but we literally live in sort of the imaginations of other people. Every building that was built, every road that was built, every every yeah. piece of art was in somebody's mind first. And when we when we look around the world, you know, when we travel around the world, travel through our landscape, we're we're also we're living in past imaginations all the time. I, mm-hmm. I really don't feel as if the dead are dead. You know, we we live in a world that is completely alive with their activities from the past and is, is only alive because of, of their past activities. So, you know, for a lot of different reasons. And then I became politically active in, in the mid-80s, 1980s, in my teenage years, and, mm-hmm. and as a way to explain my political activity and to explain my interests that way, I gravitated towards history. Yeah. I, I did not get a degree, you know, I was a, a working class person. I did not graduate from high school. During the 2008 
economic crisis. I kept losing my job and at that point took out a bunch of loans and went to college for the first time and got degrees in, in history in my late 30s and early 40s. Right. So that's that's how I came to it. And then very specifically to sort of local history in that process of going to, to university. Right. And and are you originally from Michigan? No, I'm originally from Southern Ohio. I, grew, I was born gotcha. and raised in Cincinnati, gotcha. Ohio, and much of my family is from Ohio historically, but I've been living in Michigan I moved to Michigan to participate in the Detroit newspaper strike in 1996, 1997, the late 1990s, and I ended up staying. Uh, I lived in Detroit for years and then moved out to Atlanta about 20 years ago. Right. Okay. Gotcha. And then went to Eastern in the process. Yeah. 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 Totally. It gives, you know, learning about why people become interested and ultimately become who they are, right? It's a a foundational question, I think, and it really gets... Yeah. It's always combined personal and, and the non-personal, right? So like yeah. every, it's always a combination of those things. And do you think this in your work, like, is it this even split between how personal it is to you, right? Or is it is it even, do you think it's more personal to you than say the average person interested in history, the average person, you know, who has a history degree, or do you think it's even more personalized for you? Um, because you're so interested in local and have this familial history in in the region. You know, I don't, I don't think so. I think that I, I one way to say it is that it's a weird way to say it, maybe. But history is kind of a skill. You know, the more history you know, the yeah, more yeah. you can know. So you know, if you don't know, I think it, it's it's. The, mo- the more I learn on an individual personal level, the more the world opens up to me on a non-personal level, right? Gotcha. So, so I don't, I, I wouldn't say that it's it actually learning on a personal level kind of gets you out of your person <laughs> a little, yeah. little bit. And, and you tend to see maybe instead of your identity or instead of your own ideas about who you are, you tend to see your, your actual role, which yeah. is a different thing. Um, yeah. And yeah. And so I often, I'm often sort of hoping that people, instead of seeing their identity or something like that, think about what is my yeah. role, yeah. you know, and, and, and in the society. And, and I think that right. would, you know, I think that would expose these things more than, than, yeah. than yeah. sort of what is the identity that I've been forced to have or that I, right. or that I take, you know, I think a role, the role is sort of impersonal, but it's deeply personal, right? It defines yeah. us yeah. And, and it's out of our power in some ways. Does it place you in this collective, right? It places you in the sense of a collective in this very uh, material collective, right? Absolutely. Of- I, I, I think that that my I, you know, I was saying earlier that the I don't view the past as dead or 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 the dead as past. Yeah. And 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 they, re, you know, it, you, you, they speak to you and and they speak to you in all kinds of different ways, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes a warning, sometimes a, 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 a yeah, different yeah. kinds of things. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that one of the things about history history is kind of trying to learn the language of the past right that they're speaking to you so that's one of the ways of doing it and and the more the more history you know the more words of a language you know so the more you right. can communicate with the past you know and so I, that, that's a little bit how i approach it that by learning more yeah. myself i'm able to communicate with the past on a much broader level right. than myself 
Do you think when we keep, you know, in contrast to that, if we keep moving forward and focusing on the future, right, then we really lose that connection to the past. We don't even know how to communicate about the past if we continue or only focus on, you know, the, the, the future instead of the other direction, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's you choose a path, you choose a destination, you choose a destination, you choose a path. Right. And and you don't if, if you're blindly just going to the what you think is the future, you're allowing yeah. the past to decide for you what your future will be. You know, totally. you're, you're allowing you're allowing the status quo to determine the future. Right. And, and so yeah. I think the only way we can change the future is to know the past. The only yeah, way. Yeah. In a sense, it's like if you learn about the past, you have more agency. Absolutely. Right? No, I, <laughs> I, I am I am 100% convinced that history is a weapon. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. a weapon used against us, and it's a weapon that we also have in our arsenal. Right. History is not neutral. It yeah. is not, it, it, it can't be neutral because there's never been a time in, in our society where we've had. Yeah. Uh, where we've had sort of a cohesive agreement about how we yeah. all want to live and things like that. You know, I, right. history doesn't work that way. Yeah. And in thinking about history, can can you talk a little bit about this, the importance of a place-based history, right? Because I, I mean, I'm not a historian and I don't know the different approaches that historians may take, but it seems to me, right, this, this place-based approach to history is completely central right to how you think about what happened in the past yeah. like there's no other way to really think about the past i think that's exactly right and and one of the things that one of the things about place is your place can be defined all different kinds of ways right yeah. and so so you know our place is planet earth our place is north america our place is yeah. the east side of ypsilanti our place is the living room on the you know right there's all different kinds of places you you are at but the the reason i think place-based education is so important is because what it does is it gives you a perspective and so for example you know, if you if you walk out into a blank, empty field with nothing around you, you don't know where you are. You can't you need another place to tell yeah. where you are. Right. Just like you need another person to be able to tell who you are. We, we don't right. exist alone. We only exist in relationship to other things. Yeah. yeah. And so when we say place based education, it's about giving it's about setting yourself down in a place so you can get a perspective of the larger world around you. It's not about reducing all of history to what happened into this little place, right? Yeah, yeah. It's about giving you a perspective. It's about putting your feet down and allowing you to see how this place relates to all the other places around it. Right. Rather than living in isolation as a place, your place is connected with everything around it. But the only way to understand that, to get at that, is to get a perspective, right? Is to, is to figure yeah. out where you are in that landscape. Otherwise, it won't make sense that the mountain is over there and the river is over there. Yeah. So so that's why place-based education is important because it gives you a perspective in which to investigate the world. And and do you think because, you know, you're taking this relational approach to to everything, not not only history but education in general, right? Does it it quickly goes beyond thinking about this one place because you realize that one place is actually connected to another place, another community, right? It's it's never in isolation. Right. Absolutely. It's yeah. never that's the, that that's that's what I, I think 
you know, it seems counterintuitive, but but we teach history now as in isolation. You know, the civil yeah. rights movement happened in 1956 in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. It actually happened here. And, it you know, right. like it happened all different kinds of places. Yeah, so it seems counterintuitive. But by 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 getting that perspective, we're able to see how we fit into the rest of the thing. And the way we do history now actually doesn't give us that perspective. It doesn't allow right. you to have that perspective. You, you're placed yeah. in sort of the ether of dates and yes. and and, and, and moments and stuff like that. Yeah. And you don't have a, 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 a place to, to stand and see how you relate it to everything else. Yeah, yeah. At least in my experience with education and, and history in schooling, it was never a local based yes learning right it right. was always global and then european right it was it was literally never a local based history even though i even though i think we everyone was interested and everyone would have liked to learn right but it was this this nibble of local history that we would get you know once once in a blue moon right and and often when we teach local history it's yeah Here's here's a community where none of the problems of the world ever happened, right? Like you know, here's a community. Yeah. Often when we teach, you know, like there was the Civil War, there was all of that, and in our community, we all got along. What you right. know, so, so often we we teach yeah. local history as if it it's somehow divorced from our national history, and somehow right. we didn't have those conflicts locally because we're a little local town and all of that kind of stuff. And yeah. of course, yeah. all of the major national and international conflicts and the conflicts between races and class and gender all yeah. of that happens locally it all all of yeah. that manifests itself locally so when we're looking locally i don't want to look locally for anecdotal stories of you know when this house or that house was built i want to look locally for what the civil rights movement looked like here right. what race looked like here what gender looked like i don't want to sanitize my local history by pretending that that the world didn't exist here. Yeah, I want to yeah. bring that world into my local history. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense, you know, like because we yeah. all know what we all know what our towns and cities are like. We all know how divided they are. We all know how much conflict there is. We all know how much disagreement there is. We all know how many different interests are at play. Mm -hmm. And to mm -hmm. pretend that that wasn't always true is just I mean, it's right. We don't learn anything that way. Yeah. We don't yeah. learn anything yeah. that way. I grew up in Miami. I grew up in mm -hmm. Florida. And so even then, you know, the, the history of conquest in, in Florida is a very long history, right? And, and there's there are streets like Ponce de Leon, right? There, mm -hmm. there are streets still named after colonizers, conquesters, you know, and then there, when you look up these people, right, they're called explorers, all these very, very nice names for very violent people, right? Or violent yeah. processes, right? And even even living there, it's not like we ever had a class on the history of Florida from a perspective that didn't come from these explorers in quotes, right? It was never, never, never a local history. But is that is that the case also in Michigan that even even in school, like people generally just don't learn about local history. And if they do, it's through an, another third party, like another outlet that's beyond school? Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that we tend to sanitize local history more than we do anything else, you yeah. know, so, so I think that's absolutely true. And there's all different kinds of ways you can think about that. I mean, I, I work for the state of Michigan doing those state historic markers you see on the side of the road, you know, yeah. that 
that that give history its legitimacy you know we're putting right. these words in metal and and it's yeah. it's got the authority of the state and all of that kind of stuff and yeah, and you think yeah. that those are public history markers and that they're guided by guided by telling stories that that are meaningful to communities and and what they are is a four thousand you have to have four thousand yeah. dollars and so if you have four thousand dollars you can get that story told if you don't have four thousand dollars you can't get that story told gotcha. that's what determines what story is going to be told or not you know yeah, yeah. and uh, so we end up in michigan literally having 30 or 40 signs dedicated to henry ford one individual yeah. And we have how many signs dedicated to the United Auto Workers? Hundreds right. of thousands of individuals who worked in the Ford plants. Yeah, yeah. So you know that, and and, and so you you walk around and you see signs every day that says Henry Ford, and it's not just Henry Ford on history right, right. signs, right. right? It's the Henry Ford Hospital, the Henry Ford Highway, the Henry Ford this, and yeah. you see no signs about the founders of the UAW or the people who went on strike to get better rights in those plants. And so it right. tells you that those people don't matter, that they just, you know, yeah. like even if you knew they existed, yeah. they don't matter. And, yeah. if, you know, so if you have it in your own family, you know, my right. family were sit down strikers or something like that, it's Henry Ford is still more important than you. Yeah. And yeah. and that just infects our entire landscape. And it, and it creates right. a kind of deference to power, which is its role. Right. Yeah. And and so that is true with all landscapes. Right. It's not just true of a of a specifically settler colonial landscape. It's true yeah, of any yeah. landscape where, where power is imprinted on it. Yeah. Uh, but in a settler colonial landscape, what we might call a settler colonial landscape. Sometimes mm -hmm. I actually I like to call it a speculator's landscape more than anything. <laughs> else. I think because I think that's really what happened in the United States. Yeah is that there, it's one long speculative process, process and that the settlers are just the market for the speculators, gotcha. right? You know, yeah. Like they're, <laughs> the, the, right. they're just the way that the, the speculators make money. Yeah. And so I, you know, like the United States, Jamestown, we talk about the 1619 yeah. project. Jamestown is not founded by the British army. It is not founded by the the government of England, it is not founded by the queen, it is founded by the Jamestown Stockholder Company, right? It's it's founded yeah. on the process of making money. And and that's really, I think that that fundamental process of accumulation of wealth is is the reason that people came to this continent to begin right, with, right? right, right. Uh, the Europeans came to this continent to begin with. People didn't come because they hated Indians. They didn't come because they hated Black people. They yeah. came because they loved money more than anything else in the world, right? You right, know, or, right. or that was what was power. That was, was what yeah. made them powerful in their own societies. Yeah. And so I think, you know, like, I think it's really important that while we say settler colonialism, because that has its own dynamic and its yeah. own truths and its own reality, I think it's really important to say that that settler colonialism is a product of capitalism, yeah. and yeah. and and it's really it's really capitalism that set those settlers here, right? Yeah. It, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't it was a system called capitalism that was born and 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 birthed and grew up in that colonial process it can't be divorced from it but it's really what happened here and so i you know i, I we all live in a capitalist landscape and and one way to think about a capitalist landscape 
you know, if you've ever seen the show Deadwood or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, a capitalist landscape is a mining town. It is just right. an extractive place where you extract from the ground and then you extract from the people who extracted from the ground. It's yeah, just, yeah. it's, it's, and it's ugly and it's thrown up without any sense of where the sewage goes or anything like right. that. Our right. whole country is that. And it yeah. has been from the beginning, you know, whatever we have of, of, of decorum here of rights or of, of, of the ability to live is yeah. not because of capitalism. It's because people struggled against capitalism for right. that. Right. You know, right. and and so I think that's one way to think about this. So yeah. in, in part, in part, the settlers were just as trapped as the people they were settling by this stupid system, right? Like, and right, right, right. And so, one way that I would like is that one way we can get beyond settler colonialism yeah. is yeah. give those people who were historically from a settler population a way out of being that, right? And a way to rejoin humanity on an equal basis rather than be divorced from it as a supposed superior, right? And, and to me, that can't be done on the basis of capitalism. It can't be done. It actually has to be done on the basis of tearing up those divisions we placed in the land. They, it can't be done any other way. So when we say decolonization, mm -hmm. to me, that means the ending of private property. That's what it has to mean. Yeah. Yeah. Because colonization, more than anything, brought private property, especially yeah. to the Great Lakes, which the Native American communities here, I mean, and I don't want to romanticize them, but Mm -hmm. Native American communities here had communal. I mean, there was people lived on on these lakes for twelve thousand years, and yeah. nobody ever owned a stick of private property, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and nobody ever did. Yeah, it's completely. We're completely capable of doing that. Right. 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 No, that's something I'd love to talk with you more about, and just this even even before when we've talked about the landscape as a word, you know, if, if you could clarify what you mean at least when you you say the word landscape, because it is not just the natural landscape, not just the built, but there's more than just those two elements, right? So yeah. when you say landscape, can you encompass all, all of, you know, what you're referring to? It's a simple word, and yet it has a lot more meaning and depth than it typically is used when it's thrown around, right? Absolutely. So I think that there are, you know, fundamentally what our societies are and always have been is how we organize our relationship with nature. And and that's always the way it's been. That's the, always the way it has to be. We're, we are natural beings. We are yeah. not divorced from nature, no matter how much we think we are. And so our relationship with the natural world defines who we are as a species, as, as, as cultures. And the landscape is that interface, right? The landscape is not right. just nat never just natural. As, as yeah. you know, it's always it's not in a state of stasis. It has its own dynamic, yeah. it, and we're part of that dynamic. And it's always changing. It's always changing. Yeah. It's it's a matter of being conscious about that change and 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 conscious of your own impact in that change, right? And yeah. so to me, the landscape is the place where our society meets nature and understands itself and reproduces itself. Yeah. And so that's both the, the, the strictly natural world and then the kind of world we build to, to deal with that sort of, and I'm doing air quotes because there's mm -hmm. nothing strictly natural <laughs> world. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so so the landscape is that place where, where our societies reproduce themselves 
and you know where we get our food and how we get that food yeah. and how we get our clothes and all of that kind of stuff comes from our relationship with the natural world no matter how you know right. lithium in the batteries of our computers yeah. come from the natural world yeah. right like this is this is a relationship with nature no matter yeah. how alienating the technology may be right. that comes out of that and yeah. so to me a landscape is the point in which sort of the past and the future meet, right? Yeah. <laughs> then the present. Yeah. It's it's where these things live. It's where it's where ideas come to life in material realities of people's yeah. living, you know, all of those things. So to me, the landscape can be a social landscape, it can be a physical landscape, a cultural right. landscape, all of yeah. those kinds of things. But in the end, they're the place where we're meeting either yeah. as people with nature or as people with other people in conflict, all of that kind of stuff. And to me, it's really important to say that history happens at, at that place. It doesn't happen right. in a book. It doesn't happen in our minds. It happens yeah. in that interaction, in that relationship. Yeah. And it's always dynamic. And, and it's always never dynamic. A point, there's yes. never a point where it's not. Right. By right. the nature of its existence, right? It's just always dynamic. And yet the the when it is thrown around, it is sometimes just made into the static entity, right? right? right like, right, right. And, and you said sanitized, and I think it's a perfect way to describe how history and how a lot of information, how a lot of experience is reduced, right? Yes. It's reduced and sanitized. It's a perfect way to, to say it. Right. And it is, it's also that the history happens outside of you and your own experience. It happens right. in, you know, history happens in a book or it happened in the past or anything like that. Yeah. But if you realize that that every day you're walking through the landscape, you're interacting with history on a very concrete level, on a very concrete level. Every day you wake up to go to work, you're interacting with history. People did not wake up and go to work 300 years ago, right? Yeah. Not the way we do. Yeah. And so, so every day that you, you live, you're interacting with history, you're interacting with the past, and you're negotiating with it in the present that's going to define the future. And the more conscious we are of that negotiation we do in the present, the more ability we have to define the future in positive yeah. ways rather than being defined for us by right. the power of capital. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's empowering, right? And, yes. and empowering in a very deep sense. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? And if that is something that you've discovered as you know, you've been learning and, and learning more about yourself, but learning more about history and in that process, you know, learning more about the world, but learning more about yourself and then be feeling more empowered? Like, has that been a, a very meaningful journey to you? Well, I think that that I, I wouldn't say on an individual level because well, yeah. you know I, I, I you know knowing people will say knowing is half the battle. Okay, it's half yeah. the battle, but it's certainly not the full battle. And 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 so one of the things that I I think at its best mm -hmm. uh, it does a couple of things which maybe are counterintuitive, but I think that one of the the mm -hmm. the one of the real problems about the way we teach history today is is a kind of linear notion of history that means that it, yeah. it ended up with us yeah. right and that's where it was supposed to go and it's a kind of arrogance we are the product of history yeah and, and I think that the more you know of history it allows you to be humble before it yeah. and that humility then allows you to ask questions that arrogance does not allow you to ask and right. those questions then can get at 
some truths that arrogance would hide yeah. and and would never unmask. And so I think that the only, you know, so I think that that, that kind of humility before history has allowed me to ask questions that the arrogance of thinking I knew would right. not ever have allowed me to ask. And so I think on a personal level for me, that's where it is. Now on a societal level, I think we can draw a similar thing, right? Mm -hmm. The United States is extraordinarily arrogant as a culture in terms of its own yeah. history. It doesn't even think it needs to ask. It knows, right. <laughs> knows. Yeah. And, yeah. and as a society, uh, a kind of humility before history. I know that sounds pat and, and stupid in some ways, but I, I think that that is a precondition to getting yeah, out yeah. of our impasse, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And so I think that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that history is collectively powerful, empowering. And like I said earlier, it's a weapon. And so while I, you know, while knowing this stuff as an individual may allow me to psychologically feel like it's less my, you know, I'm less responsible for my own situation and all of that kind of stuff, which is good until there's a collective understanding of that history and our roles yeah, in yeah. those histories, then we're, we're still going to be really stuck. We're really yeah. going to be stuck. Yeah. And that collective journey will only happen if everyone is really in it. Like there's no way to do it with half the people or a, a part of the population, right? No, and, 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 and the, the way to understand the past is to consciously engage in the present, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's to be totally engaged in the present is a way to get at the past and to right. be conscious and, and critical and, and humble and asking questions about the present is you'll get at the past that way. If yeah. you don't ask any questions about the present, you'll never ask a question right. about the past. Why? Why? Yeah. What types of questions in the present are you referring to? I mean, just about everything, about well, well, being critical. Yeah, right? and you know, sometimes it's we think that the questions you need to ask are the, the biggest and most profound questions, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And it's really actually the simplest questions. Why right. is this building here and that over yeah. there? You know, yeah. what, what? why is why are barns red? <laughs> you know, like these yeah. kinds of questions actually get at really big right. truths because our history isn't an accident, right? If things yeah. don't happen yeah. in the landscape by accident, they don't happen at certain dates by accident. There's reasons that come together why that barn is red and sits right. over there. And if you understand why that barn is red and sits over there, you be, the whole landscape opens up and what it opens yeah. up is who has power, who doesn't, what decisions are made for, yeah, you know, yeah. what the landscape is the use for, you know, like why we put in dams where we put in dams, you right. know, like those are, those are decisions made by people yeah. in terms of making profits and money yeah. and stuff like that. And once you yeah. realize that all of a sudden the landscape isn't an accident and Ford Lake isn't right. just a lake. It's a way for Henry Ford to exploit the landscape and make money. Yeah, And so yeah. you live in that landscape rather yeah. than, oh, it's just Ford Lake, because it's not right. just Ford Lake. Right. It's not a natural lake. It didn't exist before 1932. Yeah. So yeah. why is it there? And why is the factory that it was supposed to power no longer there? We still have the lake, but we don't have the jobs anymore, yeah. right? right. And, right. and those kinds of questions. So sometimes I think it's just the simplest question. Why is that there? And why is it, why did it happen then? And, and if you honestly ask the question and honestly receive those answers. Yeah. My God, does the 
world open up to you? So in your mind, in thinking about the landscape as this, basically the series of decisions yes. that people have made, right. right? Is that, does that ring true to you? Like, does that resonate with you? It's really just these decisions that people have made bad or good, right? They're, they're just decisions. The only, th the only <laughs> caveat I would add to that is often yeah. we make decisions unconsciously, right? Gotcha. So sometimes a decision isn't gotcha. just con conscious. And so, you know, a planner, a planner at an urban development, you know, in yeah. Ypsilanti doesn't need to be told that the highway isn't going to go through the rich neighborhood, right? right. That's, that's, they, because they know that to begin with, right? So, yeah. so it's unconscious decision. They, before they even make a decision, they know that the highway is not going to, so it right. doesn't even enter in their minds that they could yeah. put the highway there. And so it's, who's we have all kinds decision, of unconscious right? decision-making going on all the time. Yeah. yeah. Unconscious decision-making coupled with, you know, who's making the decision. Yes, exactly. Right. Yes. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah. And it's, it's, more clear to me now that when I think about it in that way, it gets at the heart of this relational aspect. Yes. This relational yes. decision making, like there, they were never really, no one's ever making decisions in isolation. They are always thinking right. about the possibility, whatever, right? Even, even if it is unconscious, right. it is totally relational, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Gotcha. And, and when you see these connections and these relationships between things in the landscape, I mean, do you think in, in your journey to know more, even just individually, do you see more relationships now than you did when you were at the start of your journey, like learning about history, local or otherwise, do you just see more relationships now? Oh, yeah. I, right? I, I, I think that, you know, a good historian makes connections. It's yeah. about making connections. It's, yeah. you know, a good historian is about busting myths and making connections. And, 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 and so the more history you know, the more connections you can make. I think it's not possible to tell the entire history of the world through a single brick, yeah. but you can do, you can get a pretty good start. You know, why this brick is here, why, you know, you, you, can, you can begin a long history with yeah. this, you know, what did the brick make? Who made the brick? How did the yeah. person who made the brick get here? You yeah. know, you can, you can open up a whole world with a single brick. And, and I mean, a big world, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. and so I would like people to make those connections. What is the connection of this brick to, you know, migration? What is the connection of this brick to industrialization? All of these yeah. kinds of things. And you can do that. And I right. think that's really where history becomes powerful is, is those connections. Because if, if people understand history doesn't live in isolation, then they see the, their themselves in those connections, right? Yeah. So where yeah. is my family in the story of this brick? Right. You know, right. where is where is where am I in the story of this brick? And and so I th I tend to think that by getting exact, we're able to open up into the biggest possible thing. So you know, right. again, it seems counterintuitive if we if we talk just about a brick. No, but if we use that brick to open up a larger yeah. world, then we've made it concrete. Yeah. You know, in people's lives and and shown and shown how this inanimate object you walk yeah. through every day mm -hmm. is alive with the past. Yeah. Alive. I think in a good example in the sustainability sphere, I think might be just the food that you buy, yes. the fruit that you buy yes. at the super, like wherever, just the, the story behind that piece of fruit 
in the entire supply chain, right? <laughs> and, well, and, I, I, yeah, look, look right? at look at the tag of your shirt. Yeah. You know, and think yeah. think of the number of hands necessary right. to get that you know that cotton wove into a shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Your shirt is the product of an entire society and an entire history. You know, yeah. your shirt is only possible yeah. through a global <laughs> connections of millions of yeah. people. Right. And in and, and a sense, like basically everything that we look at, everything that that is yeah. inanimate. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Really exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So based in thinking that everything has this, there's these experiences tied to everything, like actual, you know, human experiences. That, on, <laughs> yes. They're human experiences. Right. On, right? And one of the things, you know, I did archaeology along the Huron River as part of my graduate degree. Gotcha. And, yeah. and you know, I, I, I've known that, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, human beings have lived on this river for 12,000 years. Yeah. You know, that it, it's, it's almost too grand of a thing to, to even wrap your head around or yeah. make sense of, right? Yeah. So yeah. It's, it just kind of becomes nothing. But when you, when literally every single place you look on the river has evidence of 10,000 years of life, it almost becomes, you know, I, I look at the river now and I... Yeah. And it just overwhelms me to think the number of stories told on this river, the number of feet, the number of wow. sad days, the number yeah. of wonderful days, the number of, of rainy days, you know, yeah. like, it's just overwhelming to think of the yeah. human experience on this river that that exists in the landscape, but doesn't exist in our history books, you right. know, and and one way to get at that history, because it wasn't recorded, right. is to look at that landscape. In fact, that's probably the only way we're going to get at some of that history is yeah. to look at the landscape. And so even on the banks of the Huron River, I never yeah. just see the banks of the Huron River. I, I always yeah. see a human being right. um, interacting with that. Yeah, I live pretty close to it. And I go every time I go on a walk, right, I, I hang out there. Yeah. But I think every time I go there now, there's not going to be like I won't be able to think about the history of these thousand, this thousand years, right? There's the wonderful no way. thing about a river is it moves all the time, right? So yeah, it's dynamic yeah. itself. It's it it is yeah. a river is like you know you're watching history yeah. through the landscape. It was over there, now it's over yeah. here. You know, I rivers are wonderful, and and of course because of the Great Lakes, rivers are right. incredibly important for Native American. It's in in fact. Yeah possible to understand where people and how are living and right. how living without understanding watershed so that's yeah or even glaciation events right yes. the ice ages yeah. like my my background in earth history understands that but you know most people don't go through that education i mean even in my like primary school i, I don't think i ever took because that wasn't in the curriculum in earth science class it just right. wasn't in the curriculum well, and, and let me tell you how how important it was for me in understanding mm -hmm. Native American history in the Great Lakes to, to have a really good working understanding of a watershed and how yeah. it works. You know, like you can't just that you want right. to bring in as much sort of. Yeah different sciences or whatever yeah, different yeah. different things to be able to understand if it's i didn't richness. understand how watersheds worked yeah. and you know i wouldn't have been able to understand how native people lived in this landscape it was essential yeah. for me to do that 
Right. And so that, you know, I think that's that's one of the things we don't do with history. We say that history is just in a history book. And if it doesn't yeah. say history on the jacket, it's not history. But if you right. want to know history, you have to learn a watershed. You have to learn chemical yeah. reactions in the soil if you want yeah. to know history. I mean, that's what yeah. you have to do. Yeah. And, and farming, right? The entire yeah, process. Absolutely. I think it's like... I feel like I don't know a lot about the food that I eat, right? It's it's right. a I think it's a general it's a, it's a pretty common sentiment among people that even that are interested in sustainability but yet just don't have the the ways to like actually know truly about what we're eating, but even if we wanted to eat locally, like we can, but it's 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 not collectively supported in the same way, right? right. It's just not there. Right. And the system is, I mean, we now have a system in which our food supply is dependent on, you know, uh, yeah. what's going yeah. on in yeah. Chile or, you know, yeah. like it's, it's, totally. we, we have a system yeah. now that, that makes it very hard to actually yeah. do that, you know? Yeah. Even if we want to, yeah. even if it's, even if there is a movement towards it, right? the system's at a state where they can't change. Right. It can't change quickly. Right. It can't change. It's just, it seems, even though it's an incredibly dynamic process, it seems static in the way that it's of its an inability right. to change because right. there's so many there's there's so many people relying on it, right? But the people relying on it, I, I don't think want to rely on it. That's the thing, right? It's and I think that actually gets to one of the questions you asked about yeah. what sort of the changes in the landscape that settler colonialism brought in to Michigan. And yeah. one of the things that I think is the most, like, I mean, there's lots of different ways to answer that. And and it yeah. happened over time and it happened like unconsciously as well as consciously. And, yeah. and, and Native people played their part in, in the destruction of sturgeon and beaver in this area because mm -hmm. of this new relationship with the Europeans. But I, one of the, the main fundamental difference, and I think it will have profound impact on our ability to, to deal with climate change mm -hmm. is that the the before European conquest of the land and the creation of a, a largely agricultural landscape in mm -hmm. Michigan, the, the there was a great variety in the landscape. And yeah. that great variety it, it was necessary for Native people. They needed to, their own yeah. sustainability required that variety. You could not put all your eggs in one basket because if it was a tough winter, yeah. you were done, right? So right, you needed right. to have great variety. And the Americans, and I, I mean specifically the Americans, came yeah. in and decided, you know, we, we, we're monocrop. We want everything. We want right. to be able to have corn or at that point wheat. And we want to, to, yeah. to drain the water from this landscape where there were marshes, which were incredibly important right. for Native right. American lifestyle yeah. because yeah. we want just cropland, a monocrop, 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 mm -hmm. monocrop. Mm -hmm. So as you know, there's all kinds of destruction of that landscape, including the, yeah. the tree cover and the creation of mass erosion and the, right. the draining of our, what we're literally six feet lower in water table wow. than we were before then. But to me, that, that monocrop, that destruction of variation in By the diversity right. and diversity is, is, yeah tremendously dangerous and will be very hard to come back from. And yeah. and to me that that and that's very much a capitalist, you know, it was about yeah. 
creating surpluses of this wheat to put into right. the marketplace. That's what yeah. it was about. That's what it was about. And yeah. and and it destroyed the variation and the that allowed for native people to live right. more or less continuously in this landscape. Not, not continuously, not in terms of the same way, but you know, yeah, people yeah. continuously living yeah. with different cultures and all of that kind of stuff right. for 12,000 years. There is not a chance that our society has 12,000 years on this yeah. river. Not a chance, yeah. not a chance. The biodiversity crisis is, it's its almost absent from yes. the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Compared to climate change, right? The, right. the emphasis on climate change in relation to biodiversity is, is only talked about by a very select few group, you know, people that are people that are aware of it and then, you know, want to educate other people and want to communicate with other people about the urgency. Yes. And yet the climate change narrative dominates. Yes. Dominates. Yes. Yes. I agree. No, and, and I think we need to, you know, I, and that means that variation means rewilding. It means thinking yeah. about new ways of doing ag. I mean, we have to yeah. feed ourselves. We are going to make an impact on this earth. That is yeah. the truth. But how we do it is really important. And yeah. And that gets to the other the other part of the question you asked, which is is sort of settler colonialism and cl climate violence yeah. inextricably linked. And of course, the yeah. answer is yes. But yeah. I want to I want to 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 bring it back a little bit and and yeah. and to talk from my from my own experience. For example, my family were coal. Mm -hmm. They were involved in an extractive industry that brought you know, huge amounts of coal, you know, like th they were involved mm -hmm. in the industry yeah. uh, that is really creating much of our crisis right yeah. now. They did not want to be coal miners. Right. They were for, you know, like who gets to be a coal miner? Well, yeah. you, the way you go down into a coal mine is to be starving to death because there's no other way you would go down into a coal mine. Right. None of my family had romantic ideas about being a coal miner, right? Yeah. It was yeah. like, so when we like and those lumbering people, the people who went up north to lumber to, you know, like they they, they were, did not were not born and going, you know, I really want yeah. to cut down some trees in one of the most yeah. dangerous jobs in my life. Incredible right. violence had to be done to them yeah. and their lives to get them to become lumberjacks and coal yeah. miners. Yeah. Options had to be closed down to them. Right. Their own ability to make their own life on the land had to be denied yeah. to them. Yeah. And they, you know, so great amounts of, of, of violence against people yeah. is necessary to do violence to this earth right, because right, we right. don't, nat you know, like nobody naturally digs a coal mine. That's yeah. not what people do. Yeah. Somebody has to, and rich people don't do that, right? You right. know, like, so they, somebody has to be forced to do that, yeah. Yeah. coerced yeah. to do that. Right. So to me, climate violence always begins with violence against other human beings. Yeah. It cannot be unlinked. Yeah. And so one of the things I'm really adamant about is things like labor rights and, yeah. and workers' rights are yeah. climate rights. We are yeah. natural people. We are beings yeah. in this natural world. If we are not yeah. treated correctly, if our lives are not valued, if our yeah. work is not safe, there's no way we're going to have a good relationship with right. the natural world. Right. It's impossible. One of the ways to get people to embrace a greater connection to the natural is to stand up for their own rights as yeah. on and their own safety and their own, you know, uh, ability to have make a living that doesn't cost black lung or, you know, yeah. you to die at 52 or yeah. whatever. And so I think that's one way to talk about 
climate violence is it's it's there is no separation between climate yeah. violence and, and yeah. the violence against people it's part yeah. of the same process and the exploitation yeah. Yeah. of nature requires the exploitation of human beings yeah. requires it yeah no i t- i completely agree right it's it's i i definitely have come to understand that through through my own learnings mm-hmm. right but it's that was not something i understood as a high schooler yeah. right that was totally out of my out of my understanding and i i couldn't even think about it yeah. right it's just at, at when when you're young at least in, in that age again like we've we've talked about you're in the system right you can't get out of it right. you, you mentally emotionally can't escape it right right unless unless and like in like in your case you know your history your family history is already inextricably tied to this history of of extractive economies and they right, were processes. they were brought here they were brought here from Europe to do that yeah they were recruited gotcha. in Europe to come here to be coal miners gotcha you know and yeah, and, and yeah. they didn't come here because they were doing so great over there if they were doing yeah, great yeah. over there they wouldn't have come here right like right. and 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 yeah so uh, one of the things one of uh, like that goes back to this notion that that those settlers many of them not all yeah. of them are are also victims of this this yeah. extractive exploitive process right, right. and 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 the speculators those are the bastards yeah. who are really make you who are driving right. this and that's not i mean uh, eventually you know the settlers have a, their own dynamic right yeah. and yeah. and we get a, a kind of racialized worldview and i i don't want to dismiss any of that yeah. because yeah. that's yeah. that's really the main problem in the right. united states is that yeah. ideology yeah. Yeah. um yeah. but I don't think the people who have that ideology are responsible right. for that ideology. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. You know, that's the thing. It's about where yeah. your responsibility lies. And, and I'm not going to say that my coal mining poor family is responsible mm-hmm. for the destruction of the earth. That's, right. that's ridiculous. Right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, it's think- the coal, it's the coal operators who forced yeah. my family to be miners who are the right. destruction right. of the earth. That's, that's yeah. who it is. It's uh, this, this, what, what I keep coming back to is this agency, this self-determination and agency. Yes. Right. And that, that, that is where a lot of this, even being able to think about the future comes from, and, <laughs> right? Like, and that, yes. And I, and this, I think this is a, a good way to kind of, yeah. to wrap the whole thing up is that yeah. is what, you know, if we don't know our past, we are incapable of having that kind yeah. of agency in the present you know we will have agency but it will be decided for us it'll be circumscribed right. yeah. you know our, our choices will be extreme will be given to us from the past right yeah and yeah. and we need to determine for ourselves meaning we need to actually we need to create the menu rather than yeah. having somebody else hand us the menu right oh my uh, God. yeah <laughs> And so to me that that's what self-determination is and and that yeah. requires a deep, profound, not just understanding of the past, yeah. but the engagement? engagement with the past, the yeah. bringing forth of the past, you yeah. know, the, 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 the conjuring of the past, if you yeah. would like, you know, the yeah. making the past real, right. the, the materializing uh, it, yes. manifesting it. Right. 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 All of yeah. that. Yeah. All of that. And it won't happen unless we say it, like actually say it out loud. Yes. It just right. won't happen, right? It's, yeah. Right, yeah, and 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 myths, 
myths never freed anybody and creating yeah. myths that make us feel better as leftists or progressive or right. anti-capitalist about romantic times in the past when things yeah. weren't like this or whatever that yeah. will not save any of us right all of those myths are 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 detrimental yeah. to us and the truth no matter how messy it is is yeah. always more liberatory yeah. And, yeah. and more freeing than a myth always yeah yeah I think that's a perfect place to end it. Like I, there's nothing that I can say that would be more illuminating than have you ended it, right? I think if anything, I would, I'd just like to ask the question, like how do you, how do you not romanticize the past? Well, you, the way you don't romanticize the past is you you recognize that people in the past are just like people today. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and you, none of us romanticize our present. Right. Yeah. So if we don't romanticize yeah. our present, don't romanticize the past by allowing right. the past to be somehow devoid of all of the problems of our present. Right. Right. It's bizarre and bonkers to me that I mean, when I when I say to myself or I hear other people, you know, that uh, let's say 1900, which is, you know, South Adams Street at 1900, like just even the date 1900. Yeah. Right. Like as as if it were a very long time ago. Oh. But then we're talking about Huron, the Huron River's history of twelve thousand years, yeah. right? Right. And how do we even? How do we balance that? It's 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 so hard to get out of that mindset in terms of your chronology that a hundred years was somehow a long time yeah, ago. I know, right? It, <laughs> it's not a long time ago. I I yeah. grew up with people who were born. I I knew people who were born in the eighteen eighties growing up. Wow. You know, like yeah, I, yeah. I, they were born 25 years after the civil war. I, yeah. when I was growing up, all the really old guys were world war one vets and all the really young people right. were Vietnam vets, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. not yeah. that, it's not that past. I interviewed a woman who just died, Olanda yeah. Hudson, who was a, uh, near a hundred years old. Her grandfather mm. was born in slavery. She knew him. Yeah. yeah. She knew him. Right. And right. she just died. So, no, the wow. past is, is is breathing down our necks all. Yeah. And we think it's bad, yeah. but it's it's right here with us. It is right here. Yeah. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Sustainable Podcast with your host Rosalie. Today's episode is with Matthew Siegfried, who's a local historian here in Michigan and has lived in Ypsilanti since 2001. He's a graduate of Eastern Michigan University with degrees in history and historic preservation. Much of his work has been on Ypsilanti's local history and its connections to broad historical moments. He has focused on Ypsilanti's rich indigenous and black history and has produced a website called South Adams Street at 1900, which details the development of Ypsilanti's black community. In this episode, we discuss his journey that led him down the path of history, the importance of place-based education, relational perspectives, and landscapes as the interfaces of society and nature. We also talk about the role of the collective in understanding our history and the importance of having agency in our own decision-making and self-determination by understanding the past to a greater degree. To read more about Matthew's work, visit the links in the description of the episode and check out the website for the South Adams Street at 1900 project that Matthew has developed. I hope you enjoy the episode and the conversation with Matthew and as always, encourage you to check out more of his work. Enjoy the show. <laughs> 